The teaching this morning will be from John 17. I'm just going to go ahead and read that for us all. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And that is God's word. Uh, On the morning of April 9th, 1945, a young pastor, theologian, uh, brilliant young man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung in a concentration camp in Flossburg, Germany, about two weeks before the Second World War ended. He was hung because of his, his role in the resistance to Hitler and to the Nazi party. And the morning he was hung, uh, he made quite an impression on the camp doctor. The camp doctor was somebody who he had befriended. And this doctor was somebody whose job in the camp was to confirm the deaths. And so you can imagine that this doctor uh, confirmed hundreds, if not thousands, of deaths. But he remembered Bonhoeffer's. And in uh, in his memoir, he says this. He says, I was deeply moved by the way that this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man so entirely submissive to the will of God. Good morning. Uh, uh, My name's David. Great to be here with you this morning. I love coming out here. Love spending time with the middle coughs and spending time with you, so glad to be with you. You know, when I first became a Christian... I, like many people, came across the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And when I read it, I was reading about somebody who wasn't that much older than myself at the time, but I remembered thinking, here's this young man who knows a lot about life. And because he knew a lot about life, he knew a lot about death. And the reason that he knew a lot about those things was because he was utterly confident and his relationship with God. He was absolutely certain in who he was before God. And that kind of confidence, that kind of uh, certainty, the theological term for that is called assurance. Um, And what that means is that it's possible. It's actually possible to be so filled with the knowledge of God, to be so... uh, filled with the affection for God, that no matter what circumstances you're facing, no matter uh, what, what place you're in, the worst of possible places, that you can feel utterly safe. But not only that, 
but the people around you can feel utterly safe too. Interesting. So where do we learn about that? Well, we learn about that in John 17. John 17 is called the high priestly prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prays uh, before he goes to the cross. Uh, And he prays this prayer to his father, and he says, Father, I want my friends, I want these 12 individuals to have the same kind of relationship that I have with you, and that's a relationship of access and intimacy. I want them to know that they can be utterly confident in their relationship with you. Um, So that when the storms of life come, and they're coming, that they won't fall away. Now let me just give you a little bit of background. Jesus' ministry was about three years. And you might say that the ministry of Jesus was like a three-year storm that touched down in in, uh, Judea and it swept all the way through Jerusalem. And whoever got caught up in this storm, the storm of truth and love, whoever got caught up into it, they were challenged. Their worldviews were challenged. Their, Their notions of truth were challenged. And the disciples, they were just... They weren't that different than anybody else, except they were swept up into this storm of truth and love, but they were brought into the center, into the eye of the storm. And what, what, what happens in the eye of the storm? The eye of the storm is, of course, the calmest place in the storm. And why was it calm for them? It was calm for them because they were with Jesus. And Jesus protected them from all the adversity in the storm. But now he's saying, I'm going to be with the Father. I'm leaving you. And what that means is that this storm is about to close in on them. And instead of being absolutely safe there physically, they're going to get tossed about. He wants them to know that though they, won't be, uh, though, though they will be tossed about, they won't be lost. None will be lost, the passage says. And what that means is not, none have been lost and none will be lost. So the great claim of Christianity is that you can have an, a certainty You can have an assurance in your relationship with God that as you move through life, no matter what you've done, no matter what God calls you to, uh, no matter what circumstances that you're in, you can know that you're utterly safe with God. And the people around you can feel by being in your presence that they're safe too. So, according to this passage, how how do you get this kind of assurance? Well, here... We see it in two ways. You get assurance of the mind and assurance of the heart. Assurance of the mind and assurance of the heart. First, assurance of the mind. One of the ways in which Jesus gives this kind of confidence to his followers is that he challenges them to think, to remember. He gives them a propositional truth. He says in verse 14, it says, I have given them my Father's word. Now, what is, that? What is his Father's word? Well, in verse 4, you can read the whole mission of the Bible and the whole mission of God. And in, in verse 4, it says this, the whole mission of the Bible and the whole mission of God is that they know the true God, that the people of Israel would know the true God and Jesus Christ, his Son. Right there, propositional truth, objective truth. The whole purpose of the Bible is that people can know that there is a true God and that Jesus Christ is his son. And what that means is it has a missional aspect to it, right? What that means is that there is a true God, but in his very nature that he is a loving and forgiving God. And his whole point is to bring his people back to him. 
to redeem, to restore the world. And the way in which he's going to do that, the means through which he's going to do it, is through Jesus of Nazareth. And so he wants his, his friends to remember that, to hold on to that, to think, think it through. Keep that in the, in the front of their minds. Now, what you can immediately begin to see is that Jesus is not only the source of safety, but he's the source of conflict. Right? Both at the same time. He's the source of safety because he's the son of God who's come to redeem the world. He's also the source of conflict because he says, I am the ultimate truth. And our culture is not that different from their culture. There is a lot of talk about what is, can you know truth? What is the ultimate truth? And if you're a person who engages your friends and your neighbors, if you're living a healthy life, then you're going to know that the subject of truth is actually a very touchy one, and it's one that we all tend to sort of back away from. Because we live in a very diverse society, and therefore our friends, our neighbors, the people we admire, that love and respect, they're going to have a different worldview than the Christian worldview. You may. You may have a different worldview. Um, And yet Jesus is saying uh, that truth is not something we should back away from, but it's actually the source of safety. If we don't have an objective truth that's sort of from outside ourselves, then you cannot thrive, you cannot live the kind of life that human beings are called to live. Just, I don't want to make this argument more simple than it actually is, but imagine that we went to a baseball game. Imagine we go to Yankee Stadium, right? The jewel, the crown jewel of baseball. Sorry, I don't want to get into any real deep arguments about truth around baseball. But imagine we go to, we go to Yankee Stadium, and you overhear the umpires talking about how they're going to call the game. And one umpire is talking, saying, you know, when, when the balls come over the plate, I'm going to call, I, I, def, I, I can call a ball or strike based on what it is. If it's in the zone, then I call it a strike. If it's not in the zone, then I call it a ball. I, I define, or I don't define, I call it based on what it is. And the second umpire looks at the first umpire and says, you can't call a game like that. That's completely arrogant. You call a ball or a strike based on what you see. You come from a very limited vantage point. You have a very narrow perspective. Based on what you're, on your interpretation of the way that ball crosses the plate, then and only then can you call it a ball or a strike. And the third umpire says, uh, neither of those work for me. That ball is nothing until I define it as a ball or a strike. I determine whether that, that pitch is a ball or a strike. Now, life is not a game, right? Life is a lot more complicated than that. But you begin to see, wow, if I go to a game like that, that is going to be an anxiety filled game I'm not going to be able to enjoy it as a spectator and the players are not going to be safe to play that game they are not and yet none, nobody is going to experience the grace the poise the beauty of baseball nobody's going to be safe right and so life is not a game uh, I can find my notes here Um, excuse me. Wow.
Life is not a game, but in games and in life, you have to have some external truth, a discovered truth that you can base your life on. And Jesus, by giving his friends his Father's word, is saying that when it comes to both your physical safety and your spiritual safety, objective truth is one of the most essential things you can have. It's vital to your life. And of course, as I said, as modern people, that's very challenging for us. It's very challenging. And the idea that there is a sort of one-size-fits-all truth seems totally incompatible with our present culture. In fact, the assumption, the assumption is, is, is that if you believe in an objective truth, then you're going to be judgmental and you're going to be unsafe. But here's the irony. Jesus is telling his friends uh, to cling to his Father's word because it's, because it's safe. And he doesn't mean safe in a sort of far-off, distant, pie-in-the-sky, someday you're going to come into the, into the kingdom of God. Uh, someday you'll be safe. He's saying, you need this, this objective truth for tomorrow. Because tomorrow, the soldiers are coming. Tomorrow, all of Jesus' friends are going to betray him. Tomorrow, all of the truth that they have experienced, objective truth, they're going to now treat as subjective and relative truth for their own physical safety. They're going to betray him. And he wants them to hold on to something that says, that says, you're forgiven. You're safe. None have been lost. And none will be lost. I know who you are. You're an unfaithful disciple. But based on my fidelity, not yours, you're going to be safe. You're going to be forgiven. Put that in the front of your mind. Think. We watched E.T. not too long ago. E.T., remember E.T.? What's the story of E.T.? E.T. is about an alien of higher intelligence who comes to earth and whoever he interacts with, he ends up making them more human. And when he goes home, he says to his friend, uh, at the very end, he takes his long alien finger and he points it at his brain and he says, I'll be right here. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Truth, Pat Blaise Pascal says, is so scarce in these times that in order to know the truth, you've got to love the truth. And you've got to love it not only with your mind, you have to love it with your heart too. So he gives us assurance for the mind, but he also gives us assurance for the heart. Knowing the way and going the way are very different things, aren't they? Very different. Uh, William Templeton was the Archbishop of England in the 1940s. And he says, it's no, it's no easier to tell someone to, to um, write Shakespeare, to write Hamlet, to write Lear, than it is to, say, follow Christ. He says, they're both impossible situations. He says, if somebody were to tell me to write Shakespeare, I'd just say, I can't. I'm not Shakespeare. The only way that I could actually write Shakespeare is if the spirit of Shakespeare would come and live within me. And if the spirit of Shakespeare came and lived within me, then and only then could I actually produce the quality of work that he actually produced. And Templeton said, it's no different. 
with following Christ. You can't follow Christ. We can't follow Christ unless the, motivation, the motivating force, the spirit of Christ actually comes and lives within us. Then, and only then, can we follow him. <clears throat> uh, and so what is that motivating force? Well, we see it in verse 11, 15, and 16. In 11, 15, and 16, Jesus says some pretty perplexing things. What does he say? He says, the disciples are in the world, and though they'll remain in the world, they are no longer of the world. Very interesting. And what he's saying by that is that he's saying that they have been objectively, spiritually transferred. They've been transferred to the same place that Jesus is going, which is to the Father's presence. Spiritually speaking, they've been transferred. They're in the world, but they're not of the world anymore. And because they have been spiritually transferred, they're now presently being transformed. So that now, because they have this spirit of Christ in them, they're now becoming more and more like Jesus. You know, there was a story of a, of a, uh, a music teacher. And the music teacher, at the very beginning of, of the semester, he gave all the kids an A. And he said, my job is to make, make it so that by the end of this class you still have an A. So the, the idea wasn't that they had to earn this A. It's that they were an A. They had an A status. And he says, I'm going I'm to teach you in such a way so that you live out this perfect status, Right? And that's essentially what Christianity is all about. But what is, how does he do it? How does one get transformed? Well, it's in verse 13. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now, Christ prays for joy, but it's not just joy in general, but because he knows that our joy is not enough. Our joy is not enough to motivate us, our joy is not enough to sustain us. Christ prays that we will receive His joy. Isn't that amazing? He says, I don't just want you to have joy in general. I want, I want them to have my joy. And His joy has every, is all wrapped up in His love for the Father. It's completely bound up with His love for the Father. What do we know about joy? We know that joy cannot be earned. You can work really hard and for a fleeting moment be satisfied with your work. But joy comes when you have worked so hard and yet you, when you achieve what you want to achieve, you ac actually recognize there were a thousand different variables that I had no control over that came together. You can earn joy. Joy is a gift. It's always better than you thought it was going to be. You know, the secret element of joy is surprise, right? It's that good. You, joy is something that you, you, it's so good, you would never trade places with anybody who didn't have it. No matter what they had. If they don't have joy, you wouldn't trade places with them. And he says, I want them to have my joy. I want them to know the Father in such a way that they run to him because they know that he's safe and good. And only if they have my joy can they know that. You know, Proverbs 18 says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it, and they're safe. And when he says, 
he says, I've protected them by your name. He says, that what that means is that by your character, by, by your attributes, your power, your glory, I've protected them. And now all of that's going to become, is going to dwell within them. And they're going to be a movable high tower, safe by his joy. Now, joy in the Father has always been the motivating principle of the life of Jesus. But what's really beautiful about it is that it comes in such a way that you know it'll never leave and that it continues to grow. It'll never leave and it continues to grow. Uh, I have a very good friend. When he was 11 or 12, uh, a storm came into his family. And for all intents and purposes, he lost his father. And they were very much set adrift. And they didn't have a, a Christian background in any way. And one day, his coach, um, on the way home from, from practice, shared with him the gospel. Uh, shared with him about the true God and the Son who came to save and redeem the world. And my friend would describe himself as sort of a brain on a stick. But when he thinks about that moment, he says... I heard that truth, and it was as beautiful then as it is now. And that's a profound statement. My friend's not, he's a, actually a pastor, he's a theologian, a uh, very sharp guy. But he was saying what was as beautiful when he was 11 or 12 is still as beautiful. And what that means is joy came in. He didn't muster up joy because he didn't have any. Joy came in. You know, when you're an 11 or 12, there's lots of things that you love. But I venture to say that the things that he loves as 11 or, as 11 or 12 year old are not the same that he loves now. See, the joy came in. It stayed. And it continued to grow as he grew. It be, continued to mature as he matured. And the people around him noticed. And I also know his mother. <laughs> she said he was quite a rascal when he was 11 or 12. But all those things about his nature that made him a rascal became redeemed. And he became quite a leader in his own home as an 11 or 12-year-old. People notice when joy comes in. Even your adversaries will notice. Even Nazi camp doctors cannot deny. Uh, Matthew Paris. Matthew Paris is a journalist um, in London. He's an atheist, very evangelistic atheist. He grew up in South Africa. Or excuse me, he grew up in Africa. Um, not South Africa, but he grew up in Africa all over the place, and now he lives in London, but he returns to, London, or to Africa now and again. He has a great affection for Africa. But in uh, 2008, he wrote a, an article in the London Times, entitled this, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. And he says this. He says, As a child living in the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They, the Christians, stood tall. As a young man, as I traveled through Africa, whenever we went, entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces 
of the people we passed and spoke to, something in their eyes, the way they approached you direct, man to man, without looking down or away. They had not become more deferential towards strangers in some ways, less so, but more open. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Different from the work of secular uh, non-governmental organizations, from government projects, from international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Joy came in to the lives of people, and even this adversary was able to recognize that. Now, the Bible tells us that we are recognizers of truth, but we're also suppressors of truth. That we take truth as part of our fallen human condition, and we twist it. We can't handle the truth, right? But how, do we, how, do we, how are we able to begin to appropriate the truth, the gospel truth, to ourselves? I think one way to begin is to see, as Pascal, Blaise Pascal said, you know, in order to, you know, truth is so scarce in these times that in order to know the truth, you've got to love the truth. One way to begin to appropriate that is to see that the truth has loved you. You can't pursue the truth unless you see that the truth has pursued you in Jesus. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but before me. You know, Jesus is about to, be, to go and reunite with his Father. Joy is going to be reunited. That's a beautiful, incredible thing. It's something that you, should, you would celebrate if your friends were going away. But he's not going to do that except through the cross. He has to go through the cross. He has to give up joy so that we can receive joy. The, the, the evil, the suffering, the sin, our willingness to suppress the truth, our willingness to, uh, to twist the truth, truth for our own benefit, the way that people suffer in this world, that is not relative and it's not subjective. That is objectively painful for people. We're objectively broken. And so the gospel is that Jesus, to reconcile our relationship, dies an objectively true death for an objectively true broken world so that we can have an objectively true joy. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's uh, the kind of truth that you can, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that you base your whole life on. So what would we do? How would we live if we based our life in that kind of joy? Well, we would probably build a foundation of prayer in our lives. Jesus had this joy, and yet he was utterly disciplined about his time with God, about waking up in the morning and being with his Father. He was very disciplined on it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was filled with this spirit of Christ, this gift, this joy. And he was utterly dis disciplined about it as well. Uh, and because of that, he lived with a holy abandon. You know, the reason that he was in Germany was, you know, he grew up in Germany. He was an aristocrat in Germany. He came to, to the States to 
get an education like so many people do. And when he saw that his country was in turmoil, he saw that people were dying, he said, I will not allow my neighbors to be affected like this, to be murdered. And even if it costs me my life, I'm going to go and I'm going to stand with them. I'm going to help them. You know, how do you... That's a life of reckless abandon. Who would do such a thing unless you were filled with joy? So he lives a life of, of reckless abandon. And part of living a life of reckless abandon, he would say, he, says to his, he told his friends, he says, you need to spend a day alone. And the day alone for Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a day in which you just... A day, uh, a time in the day in which you spent with God, reflecting on, on the things of God, studying His truth, keeping it in the forefront of your mind so that you can begin to make these kinds of decisions so that when you come into community, you're not just coming saying, please fill me up, I'm so desperate, which we all do, but to coming and saying, hey, I've got food for you. I've got joy to share with you. Right? That's what a family does. Are you a part of that kind of family? Let me ask, what is your truth? What's your doctrine? Do you live a life of reckless abandon based out of joy? And then lastly, and most obviously in this passage, this is a passage of listening and explaining. Christians, we should be the best listeners. We should be there utterly quiet, wanting to hear the truths of our friends and our neighbors. Christians, we should also be great explainers of the things of God. This is a really dense passage, and Jesus does a very good job of just feeding his friends in the smallest of bites, but they are delicious. So with that in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that we live in such a time that we can open up this Bible, which is your word, and be fed. Lord, the Apostle Paul says that he knows the secret to be content in any situation. Lord, help us to reflect on on what we've learned today so that we might be partakers of this good news, this secret. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.